Hey, it's Joe Roeder with the Men Podcast, sitting beside my favorite river, the Yakima River, and uh, just wanted to record a podcast. I'm going to do Instagram Q&A today. There's some awesome questions. If you don't follow us on Instagram, go follow at Red's Fly Shop on Instagram. Okay, I have been absolutely fishing my ever-loving brains out for the past month, so I've not been podcasting, although I've told myself 15 times, like, oh, i got to sit down and record a podcast. Well... Here I am. I finally got around to it. Um, so after fishing a whole bunch over the last you know month since I've done this thing, and I've guided more this spring and summer than I have in many years, uh, I've got a couple of just takeaways. And I've been guiding actually quite a few guests that I don't normally guide. Um, I could probably guide 300 days a year if I wanted with just regular guests and, you know, um, guiding as much as I can, but I've been picking up some overflow, um, from the shop, you know, when we're kind of busy certain days, I just, yeah, grab a random trip, jump in the boat, row the boat, or, uh, lead a fish along through our Reds University of Fly Fishing, which is the best fishing program in the country. Uh, if you want to become a real proficient at fly fishing, get some real mentorship on the water with, with pro. Um, and my biggest takeaway is just, you know, folks, if you're listening to this, you want to get good at fly fishing, you know, one thing is I would work on uh, your casting. Two is getting the Reds University of Fly Fishing if you live in the Northwest. It's a two to four year commitment. It's not expensive. In the whole scheme of things, it's cheap. Uh, but we, we're not going to get you good at fly fishing in a weekend. We're not going to get you good at fly fishing in a week or even one season. Like, you need time to fish, fail, struggle, succeed. You know, to go do that, go do those trips on your own. Spend a day out without us come back, visit us, spend a day on your own, come back, visit us. Do that over the course of a couple of seasons and let us shape you into the angler you can be because fly fishing is awesome and it gets more awesome as you get better at it. And so we're we're committed to helping you get better at fly fishing. I mean, that's our goal here. If we can get you good at fly fishing, we're going to make get you hooked on it and uh, get you good at it and you're going to buy stuff from us for years, not just like a season, not just like tickling your interest one time. We want to commit to helping you become very good at fly fishing but out of all the people i've been with okay i've been guiding small streams big streams rowing boats bass fishing steelhead fishing everything man I mean, we got it all within a day's drive of reds here you're experts on a lot of stuff uh get better at casting just if you can eliminate casting from your like cognitive process meaning like we don't have to worry about the cast. It's not as stressful and deaver that we're like, where is my fly going to go when I aim it this direction? Like, if you can cast, then we can start having a conversation like how to get the trout because you got to sell that fly. Let's just talk trout fishing. Like, it's not enough to just get the fly in the area of the trout. Like, a good angler is going to move that fly and twitch it at the exact moment that we need to, you know, create a strike and sell it to the fish. We need to bounce that hopper off blades of grass consistently so that, you know, it, it, we create the illusion of that fly falling in. Don't think for a second that fly or that fish does not see that dry fly land. If you can let the fish see that dry fly land and you can make it look like it just tapped down on the water right out of the sky, that fish has an innate instinct to pursue prey. <clears throat> That's why for you experienced anglers, when you've cast a fly into the stream and a fish is on it like instantaneously, the fish absolutely saw the fly in the air before it even hit and darted up and was waiting to meet it. So especially with mature trout, 
if you can show them the origin of the fly or the prey, meaning like the, the trout, it, the whole story makes sense. Like I was let, you know, and here I was <laughs> sitting in my little hidey hole along the grassy bank. And then a hopper just fell in and I went and grabbed it. Like that's how it happens. Hoppers, like think about how few hoppers you ever see in the river. Well, they fall in. They just do one of two things. They scurry back to the bank right away or they get eaten. They don't sit in the water for like a half a mile and just floating haphazardly downstream because good food doesn't last long in an environment like that. So get good at being accurate with your cast. You know, I'm going to run through just a couple like little tiny tips that I've given people and seen improve their cast over the last month. Okay, one, the fly rod is a nine foot mechanical launching device. You have a huge mechanical advantage. The tiniest flick with your wrist and elbow will make that rod tip move very quickly. You don't need to overdo it. You have a nine foot launcher attached to your arm. Okay, like think, think about this. Do the least with the rod and try to get the most with the cast. If you do that, you're gonna become a good caster very quickly. Keep your elbow near your body. I don't see good casters that have a loose or sloppy elbow, okay? Uh, the next thing is a lot of these modern high energy graphite rods, they're capable of casting 100 feet. Most fish are caught at 25 feet with a dead ass accurate cast. A tight loop, a quick delivery that had good line speed to promote accuracy. To that fly rod, that's a putt. That's like a putt in golf, right? It's tiny, but it's so important. You know, you know, in, in golf, putting it in the cup is what matters. In fly fishing, putting that cast on the money is what matters. So the fly rod, it's most casting is going to be a tiny little casting stroke. It's going to be a very short, quick backstroke and a very short forward stroke. You have a nine foot lever. You shouldn't have to work that hard to do it. Next thing is eliminate slack at all costs. That means if you have slack in your line, you go to start a cast, just start your cast slow and accelerate. The cast should accelerate to a stop in both directions, both back and forward. It should never decelerate. Your cast shouldn't slow down towards the end. Okay, I see a lot of people doing the exact opposite cadence of what they're supposed to. Your cast needs to accelerate to a nice crisp stop, not decelerate with just a gradual, you know, deceleration. That doesn't work um, at all. Only under like, I'm sure there's some listener pro, you know, you know, FFF certified master caster that's like, no, you would decelerate to do an underpowered curve or create an intentional tailing loop. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Just accelerate to a stop. 90% or more of casting situations require that. Okay, that's enough. Just to control your cast, practice in advance, get better at casting, Keep your elbow tight, shoot straight. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and just get on with the Instagram questions. There are some good ones here, and um, I'm gonna start at the bottom of the list and then work my way up to the top. And that way, if a couple more come in while I'm recording this, I get as many as I can. Okay, first question. Son of Croy, Bobby Miller, Red's Fly Shop manager, doer of all things great inside Red's Fly Shop. Bob wants to know, what are they biting on out there? And uh, Bob gets that question a lot, so he wanted me to share it on the podcast to answer it for the 1,500 people a week that call and ask. So we're going to talk about, like, specifically what are they biting on here on this river, and I feel like it will apply to most western trout fishing scenarios. And it is hopper, hopper, hopper time. Everywhere I've been in our area around the Pacific Northwest, there's been hoppers all over. 
Hoppers are cyclical. Some years are light, some years are big. This happens to be a really big hopper year. I'm going to say start with hoppers, end with hoppers. You can nymph fish in October. You can nymph fish in November, December, January, February, March, April, May, June, and even July. But in August, we fish hoppers. Start and end with hoppers. If the trout are swirling and kind of batting them around and short striking them, use lighter tippet, use a more dainty hopper. You can use something like a Dave's hopper and get it to ride a little soggy and low, and sometimes they will do that. But for whatever reason, even in unpressured environments, trout love swirling at hoppers. They really do. I've seen them do it on unpressured streams uh, and do it to real hoppers. So it's not always just because they know there's a hook in the fly. They just do it. Okay. So hoppers, hoppers, hoppers. Um, yeah, there's. I'll get to the next question because there's going to be some other things I'm going to add, but I'll do it on the next question. All right, Jared Copeland, he wants to know what temperature should you start getting real uh, concerned about stress on trout? It's a great question. Um, I would say 70. We should start thinking about not fish in the afternoons. I'm not going to roll out some holier-than-thou, uh, you know, uh, proclamation that everybody needs to quit fishing if the water hits 70. Um, you know, it, only once in the history of our river has there been a mandatory hoot owl shutdown. We've done it voluntarily. Um, the term hoot owl comes, it's a logging term uh, for only uh, cutting timber in the morning. Uh, and then, you know, you're out logging and working when the owls are hooting still. And then you quit um, in the afternoon just to not create fire hazard. Um, so we apply that term to trout fishing as well in the outfitting industry. And hoot owl closures mean we don't fish after 2 p.m. typically is the deadline. So when it hits 72, we should really think about knocking it off and quitting fishing. 70 is stressful, but more than anything, I would say how anglers handle fish uh, in the summertime is far more of an issue to me. I think fish deserve to be landed quickly, unhooked quickly, and released with a minimal amount of handling, if any. I so rarely ever take a trout out of the water. I cannot remember the last time I let a guest hold the trout for a photo. When I'm guiding, we catch a lot of trout. I feel like they're everybody's fish. They're your fish. They're every license holder's fish. They're not our fish. I, they, that fish and you deserve, for me to put that trout back in the water is, is with a zero impact if possible. So I'm a real believer that we should play fish fast, fish single fly setups, quit using double nymph rigs when it, the water gets warm, you know, self-police, don't catch as many fish. There are other ways to reduce your impact and fight them aggressively and let them go fast but i would say when this water hits 72 i'm highly concerned uh, about the the health and status of the fishery 70 i start to get antsy and look at the weather forecast and see if we're going to have some cool nights if we're going to have some cool nights we probably continue fishing uh if it looks like the trend is going to be warm overnight lows meaning the trout really aren't getting that nice break at night uh that's when we start thinking about going to a voluntary uh hoot owl closure but uh good question all right the next question is guys looking for a um, budget pike slash musky rod which that that is increasing in popularity um, especially with a lot of game management um, a lot of states utilizing tiger musky to eliminate problem species but uh yeah i'd say a reddington predator easy choice super tough rod i've used the 10 and the 12 a lot um, i think throwing those big heavy flies um, the, the predator they make a couple of musky specific models i think that's a uh really easy choice um i'll just kind of leave it at that it those pike and musky rods really need to be able to throw 
extremely large flies with ease. Uh, if I was going to enter one more rod into the discussion, it'd be the Sage payload at 550 bucks. Um, you know, I think you're getting more than twice the rod, but if I'm on a budget, I'm on a budget, I'm going to get that Reddington uh, Predator. Uh, the next question my son threw in there, just because I think he was feeding me a softball here. He said, what leader length and size for small stream fishing? Uh, Think of it like this. If the stream is like sidewalk width to uh, like single lane county road or single lane road width, I'm thinking I'm on about a six foot leader. Um, because if I need to make a 15 foot cast and I have a 10 foot leader, that's only five feet of fly line out my rod tip. And that makes it really tough to throw a really aggressive, you know, kind of accurate uh, cast. So what I want to do is I want to split that ratio up and I want that ratio divided a little bit differently and if I've got 15 feet I would rather have nine feet of fly line out and six feet a liter because it's going to load the rod way better than the inverse of that relationship so I want uh, a little bit more fly line the leader and you don't need a long leader unless it's a spring creek environment with really spooky fish and big long slick pools if I'm talking about kind of bubbling mountain brooks with lots of boulders and structure and things like that, where I'm flipping flies up under trees and casting across choppy water, short leader uh, is my choice. So about a six foot leader. I like to get a seven and a half foot 4X real supple flex leader. And uh, I'll sometimes start with seven and a half feet, but if I know I'm going to be in really tight quarters, I'll cut a foot off the butt section, tie a new perfection loop in there and uh, start it with at six and a half feet. All right, next question. Um, I didn't look at the name, so I always like to give a shout out to people who are commenting. Um, I love that. Uh, but the question was, what is my favorite budget Euro nymphing rod? And I, I would say that Reddington Strike is probably emerging as, as I think the best rod right around 300 bucks. It's hard to say because Echo and Reddington, those are our two kind of like, I don't want to call them budget brands because 300 bucks is still expensive, right? Like, it's still a lot of money. It's a good quality rod. It's got a lot, I mean, they're, they're, they offer a lot of performance. They're trying to equate them to like a Sage, Loomis, or Winston, or whatever. It's not even fair, but they're going to get a good portion of the performance you're going to get out of those higher end rods. You're still going to get them with those less expensive rods, but durability is going to be less, and uh, the finish is going to be less, and there's just a kind of an intangible feel of connection on those higher end rods that you can't necessarily um, quantify, but it's there. But, uh, so 300 bucks, like I'm going to consider that a budget rod. I'm sorry. Um, but that's where we're going to start. That Reading the Strike is really proven itself to be durable and, and be pretty touchy. It, it's going to feel a lot heavier than the Echo Shadow 2, which the Shadow 2 is just a lighter rod, but is much more fragile. Those Echoes do break. Um, and most of the time, you know, I've broke some, and I'll take fault as the angler. I need to leave those things in the tube. I need to take the rod in the tube to the river, put it together, fish it, and then put it back in the tube and not let it bounce around the back of my SUV or my pickup or my Jeep or whatever the heck I'm driving. Uh, those rods are delicate, fine uh, fishing instruments that should be cared for carefully. So uh, I'm going Reddington Strike. And uh, if the Reddington Zero reel is in stock, um, I'm going Reddington Zero on the reel. Um, if it's not, then I'm going with Lampson Liquid 3 Plus uh, on the reel uh, for the reel. And then I'm probably going dedicated, uh, you know, 
probably dedicated line, and if I'm on a budget and I want the best line, probably the Scientific Anglers Competition Nymph line. Uh, that's what I run. It doesn't come with loops, so you're going to have to attach your leader to it yourself, which is not too big a deal. Um, but I find it to be the thinnest and stiffest out of all the, the Euro lines. Um, the, the real FIPS is easier to work with because it's got loops, but that SA Competition line is a little stiffer. Um, gives me a little bit better uh, feel. All right, the next question... Um, is asking about, and I'm going to, I'm going to give out the, the name. Hang on. I had to go check it out. It's uh, goth Paul Bunyan, um, asked the last question and this one too. And I love it. The multiple questions is allowed. And he asked for some tips just on kind of explaining like what the transition and strategy is going to be like when we're switching from like a summer environment to a fall environment, which is going to come up in the next month. And what ends up happening with the temperature in a river is it ends up, um, right now the trout are scrounging, as I may have explained, where there's not a lot of aquatic insects hatching right now or even active. So the water temperature rises, you know, goes to 55, 60, 65, like 70, and the bugs get really stagnant because on the way up as the temperature was climbing, that was triggering a lot of these hatches. And those hatches get triggered and then they kind of stall out once we get really warm. But then as the temperature drops in the fall and it dips back to 60 and 58, 57, 55, and so on, it will begin to trigger strikes again. In the fall, what will happen is as those, as the hoppers die off and the terrestrials are kind of done, you're still going to get some of the terrestrial fishing, like especially bees. Uh, a bee pattern is an excellent terrestrial in the fall. Flying ants. Um, like termites are really good in the fall. Um, the hoppers kind of disappear um, a little sooner, but some of the, like the bees are really good because the first couple of hard freezes, the bees just seem to wind up in the water for some damn reason. So yellow jackets are all over. Um, so dry fly fishing, if we're talking terrestrials in early fall, we're looking at bees and things. But really in the fall, I think, you know, where I want to go with this is as those hatches begin to get triggered on most streams, Fall mayfly hatches and fall caddis, with the exception of the October caddis, are pretty small uh, insects. Also, rivers are typically their lowest and clearest at that time, so everything has to get scaled down for uh, a more intelligent or more savvy trout. So we're looking at lighter tippets um, than in the summer because the water has reached its lowest point of the year, usually in October, um, before you know fall rains happen. And we're looking at 6x tippet, you know, um, wouldn't be uncommon for me. We're looking at number 18 and 20 nymphs. Uh, we're looking at delicate nymphing setups, maybe a, a very dainty New Zealand strike indicator system. And I'm going to really focus in on those nymphs, that those pre-hatched nymphs. Like on this river, we're going to see a lot of blue-winged olives in the fall. We're going to see a variety of small mayflies like uh, mahogany duns, um, like in just a general, like a lot of the, the mayflies might not even have names, but there'll be like a light Cahill looking mayfly in a variety of small mayflies. And I'm really going to look at those and go, okay, I want really good betas nymphs and I'm going to fish little nymphs and I'm going to focus on delicate light tackle nymphing setups through most of the, the pre-hatch. In the pre-hatch, I might mean the week leading up to good hatches or the weeks leading up to good hatches. Uh, if dry flies aren't a possibility. And during the, the, the onset of the hatch, I'm going to be nymphing soft tackles on light tippet or swinging, even swinging soft tackle on light tippet. 
And a Euro-nymphing setup can be, you know, effective anytime. But what I like about Euro-nymphing in the fall is I don't have an indicator on my line. So when I do let my nymph swing to the surface and imitate a swimming mayfly nymph, I don't have an indicator on there to distract. So I get a lot of fish on my Euro setup as it, as it swings up from the bottom. Uh, as far as a hot fly for that, I would really consider picking up some gumdrop or soft tackles from us, uh, number 16s. Uh, through the fall because those those mayflies they do tend to lift to the surface and you get a lot of bites on tension uh, on that fly it seems like so uh, and then there's there's other hatches in the fall like early fall the october caddis for us are a big bug they're fairly nocturnal and uh, in the fall when you get that really like the early fall when you get a really low clear water and hot days it's like a nice warm day in september october that river will come to life in the evening but will probably be pretty tough fishing in the morning. So as we transition into fall, focus your effort on the afternoon hours. Um, you know, try to catch the hatch. And then on hot, sunny days, man, when that shade hits the water in the evenings, those fish go out of their minds. But I wouldn't expect much in the morning. When we get to the first hard freeze for us, that's usually about the third week of October. That's when the streamer fishing tends to pick up. And our fish here tend to like much smaller streamers in the fall. Uh, we don't have brown trout. Brown trout typically get very aggressive for large streamers in the fall because they're a fall spawner and they just tend to have an attitude. Um, but here, the fish tend to like little number eight and ten olive streamers on sink tip lines. And uh, that after that hard freeze, our, our hatches kind of slow down again, but the fish are still voracious and looking for food and we kind of fill that void uh, or they fill that void by hunting for bait fish at that time. So... I can do a whole podcast about that transition, but hopefully that was uh, helpful. Okay, Aquatic One wants to know, when chasing large trout on still water, uh, am I using fluorocarbon or nylon tippet? And my answer, my short answer is I'm using fluorocarbon uh, almost exclusively, uh, unless I'm throwing a dry fly. Um, you know, fluorocarbon's dense and sinks pretty fast, but... Generally on still water, I'm going to be fishing a fly under tension. There's not going to be a dead drift option. And so I really don't need that supple tippet like I would in a river. Uh, fluorocarbon tends to be a little stiffer than, say, a nylon uh, a nylon or traditional uh, material. And so I'm running fluorocarbon. If I'm fishing, doesn't matter whether I'm fishing damsel nymphs, uh, dragonfly nymphs, leeches, chronomids, uh, cat, swimming calabatus nymph, whatever, uh, chronomid. I'm fishing fluorocarbon, and then if I'm sight casting with dry flies, uh, I'm probably throwing a mono. Um, if I can see a shadow from the mono on the still water because it's so calm that the tippet is actually making a shadow on the water surface, then I might switch up and throw like a little piece of fluorocarbon, like the last 16 to 18 inches or so, and get that tippet off of the surface so that there's no shadow. Um, that would be a consideration that I would have. Uh, I think that's a good question, but I'm going to go uh, mono most of the time, or excuse me, fluorocarbon most of the time. And as far as the size range goes, without knowing the exact size of the fly or the fish, it's hard to say. But he says large trout. I'm probably still going all the way down to a 4X, um, simply because I'm not going to have to deal with current. So even if I'm catching you know, five-pound fish, I can probably handle them on a good 4X fluoro uh, most of the time. All right, next question was the Righteous Life. Just got a new drift boat. Apparently, it's a big one. Um, and 
he's looking for advice on rowing a bigger drift boat. Um, yeah, man, start hitting the iron in the off season. <laughs> uh, no, it, drift, drift boat rowing has very little to do with strength and, and a lot more to do with just, a lot, lot, honestly, a lot of flexibility and uh, just knowing it's kind of like surfing. You know, I kind of joke all the time, like, the more you row a boat, the easier it gets. Um, not that we don't work hard, but there's a lot to be just saying, like how you transition in and out of eddies and currents and how you keep the keep that boat parallel with the current at all times um, and not letting that boat canter or pitch too many degrees left or right um, and really keeping it parallel with the current. Uh, make sure the boat's set up right. Uh, make sure that you're getting a really good power stroke. Um, make sure you have the right length of oars. Uh, I, I can't speak to like beam width on boats and what oars should work for certain widths, but most drift boats that we row, um, most of our clack crafts here, we're running nine foot oars for the most part, but I know some of the bigger stuff, guys like to have nine and a half foot oars, uh, just to get the leverage point right on the oar lock uh, and get a little bit more leverage on the uh, kind of the, um, just out of the oar in general. Uh, I don't necessarily have any tips other than I would pay attention to your anchor weight. You know, I see people run 45 pound anchors, which seems, you know, is a little excessive, I think. I think that extra 10 pounds, I run a 34, and I think that extra 10 pounds right on the back of the transom has a pretty big effect on pulling that transom a little lower in the water and, and not letting the current get underneath it. So I think that's, uh, that's a consideration is, uh, anchor weight, uh, or length, but more important, or quality. Um, oars make a huge difference the way they flex and uh, the way they move. I think it's really critical that your oars uh, have the right flexibility and uh, are appropriately built for that boat. So I, I would just say, nah, just get out there, row as much as you can, but just keep that boat positioned uh, parallel with the current. Don't worry about crab stroking a whole bunch. I get questions about that. Crab stroking is probably it looks cool, but it's probably a little bit overrated. You just got to really work on shifting your own weight left and right, learning how to keep that boat surfing and up on top of the current. Next question is from iMize941, and that is my thoughts on the Winston Pure 10 foot 4 weight 4 indicator nymphing. And I think it's an absolutely killer indicator fishing rod. Um, it wouldn't be my favorite Euro rod. When I first glanced at the question, I thought, oh, I've you know, I, I, I hate saying anything negative about a Winston rod ever because they're just awesome. And they're, the thing is, there's there's 18 hands that work at that company that built that rod for you. 18 people. It's a small company, and they build those things one at a time uh, for anglers just like you. But I don't think the Pure is the best Euro rod, but it's a killer indicator rod for pitching, you know, especially if you throw a lot of nymphs in the size 12 to 20 range having that nice soft tip to stay connected with those fish it doesn't take much to drive a smaller hook home you don't need an aggressive tip on those things what you need is a tip where you can get that fish hook delicately and keep it on on some of those smaller light wire hooks so yeah when it comes to mending line feeding high sticking and setting the hook with with moderate size flies that 10 foot four weight is going to be absolutely killer you could still throw number six stonefly nymphs with it. You can still throw some number four stonefly nymphs with it. It's just set, you know, what you lose ultimately is uh, probably a hook set as much as anything and just making sure that you can drive home a really heavy wire hook. So 
I think it's absolutely a great choice for indicator fishing. Uh, I would I would recommend that rod. Uh, I absolutely wholeheartedly uh, would endorse that that rod. All right, next question was from Andrew Shoham, and uh, he was asking about a river uh, in north central Washington called the Medhow River, uh, which I've I used to spend an enormous amount of time uh, floating and guiding that river. And uh, he was asking, can paddlers safely float from, this question I'm going to scale it so that anybody in the entire country would would get something out of this, but he's, he's curious about a particular section of river from this area called Winthrop down to this area called Carlton, and can, uh, you know, can paddlers, you know, float that section of river. So, um you know, one thing I like to start with is get that base map app. Go to redsplyshop.com slash base map, get that app. Look at the satellite imagery for the river number one. You can see the log jams. You can see whitewater. You can actually zoom in and see boats on the river because they do most of that satellite aerial photography during the summertime. So you can zoom in and see drift boats and, and actually see real time what kind of craft uh, are actually floating on that stream. So I would get the base map app to start. It's going to show you access points. You can measure length of float and all that kind of stuff. To answer your question, I here's what I can say. Guides float that thing in fiberglass drift boats regularly. So I can tell you that I have floated it a hundred times. I've never found it to be dangerous at all. But it's tougher an outfitter to say, yeah, go ahead and float it, not knowing what kind of craft you're in and that kind of stuff. So, Andrew, I don't mean to be unhelpful, but I can say people float in rafts all the time. I floated it in both fiberglass boats and in, in rubber rafts. Uh, I think you're going to have probably go up there and size up the river and have a great time. Get the base map app to mark your put-ins and takeouts. Uh, the, the section that I ran most of the time is from Twisp down to Carlton to get more specific. That was my home beat for trout fishing uh, and, and guiding a lot of steelhead you know, years ago until I started spending pretty much exclusively my time down here and on the Klickitat. Um, just be careful anywhere you go, but the rotter in this time of year is at kind of its low point for the year. Should be good to go. All right, next question is from Devin uh, Bastard. Uh, I'm not sure how to say that, but Devin was just wanted to know if I had any good fly fishing book recommendations. Why, yes, I do. Um, depends on what you're after. If you're after entertaining reading, um, I've got a couple um, that I've read and write these down. Uh, one's called The Earth is Enough. Can't remember the name of that author, which is absolutely awesome. My dad gave that to me. It's a killer book. I just can't recommend it enough. Starts a little slow, um, but I would really recommend that. The other one is called Many Rivers to Cross. Uh, that is also... A very interesting read but if you're looking for like technical fly fishing uh, advice or instruction number one book I would get wisdom of the guides um, I could go on a rant and I would sound like a jerk if I did went on like full board Joe wrote a rant on on books but books are like you guys this podcast is great keep listening don't shut me off but I'll tell you books you want to get like knowledge like real knowledge, like trout have been eating insects for zillions of years, right? Books have been around and kind of fell off as far as like publication, like 15 years ago, you know, the internet began to replace a lot of people's time and attention. And 
If you want to get really good information written by like an accredited author who knows what the heck they're talking about, books are like the source. It, like I take on certain endeavors in my life. Like if I want to get better at, at shooting my rifle at extreme long range, okay, that's one thing I'm, I'm getting kind of into. I started riding and training horses a ton about, a ton being relative, uh, I got a lot of stuff going on, but I started riding horses and, and had some project horses myself about starting about five to six years ago. If you're going to get into something you know a little about, books are like a really the best way to get started. Gardening. There's another one. I got my own garden. My wife does most of the work, but if I want to learn more about gardening, going to the internet is going to be a habit trail of misinformation. Get books. Okay. So I really recommend get books, read books, and spend some time in books because they were written by an accredited author produced by a publishing company whose board or team of editors thought that it was good information and the author writing it and sharing it was knowledgeable. So I really recommend books, but I really like Wisdom of the Guides. The other one for like basic fly fishing is called the Curtis Creek Manifesto. I believe it was written in 1978. And I don't think that there's a better instructional on basic fishing uh, than that. If you're into Euro nymphing, there's a really great book. I believe it's by George Daniels um, about fishing the tight line nymph. I don't know what that. I can't even remember the title of it, but we have it here in the shop. But uh, yeah, splitting it at entertaining reading versus technical reading. A uh, couple that I've read over the last couple years: um, "Your Many Rivers to Cross," "The Earth Is Enough," and then uh, there's another one called "If I Think It's a Fishing Life Is Hard Work." Uh, or a fly fishing life is hard work. I can't remember which. I'm sure you can find it on Amazon. We don't sell that one in the store. Good question. I love books, man. Go get them. Don't quit listening to my podcast or watch my YouTube channel. But uh, you want some good information, get some books. All right. Get Western Wild. I haven't seen their profile, but I love the name. Uh, get Western Wild wants to know, hey, if you could fish for one species the rest of your life, what would it be? First thing I got to say is that's a terrifying thought, but I'll answer anyways. I would fish for trout uh, simply because the overlap of things I like to do. I mentioned riding horses. I love the Western U.S. I love the Western lifestyle. I'm an avid bow hunter, rifle hunter, backpacker. Spend an enormous amount of time uh, roaming our public lands, and trout happen to inhabit many of the same places that I would visit whether I was a fly fisherman or not because they're beautiful, trout are beautiful, and they live all over the world uh, with the exception of the low latitudes. So, uh, trout, man. But I don't have to pick a particular kind of trout. I can fish for sea trout. <laughs> I can fish for brown trout. And I can fish for sea run trout, which would be steelhead. So I'm kind of evading the question. But I would pick trout. That would be it. All right, Tracy Ertel uh, said... They had decided on a 590-4 Sage X. Personally, my favorite big western river style trout rod. I love it. It casts from 10 feet to 100 feet. And uh, I, I fished it recently. I'm just going to make a comment about the rod. I don't want to make this like this podcast every too much just about gear. Uh, but I went and fished that rod. I'd fished a bunch of other rods, and then uh, I was guiding, and I'd fished a Sage Sonic, and I'd fished a Winston, and a couple of others, and then I went back, and uh, I had was letting one of my guests use my Sage X 9'5 weight 
you know, which is what Tracy's referring to here. And it just reminded me how damn good that rod is. It is just connected, it's tight, it throws straight, it throws all the energy you need, but still has touch. I mean, I could go on and on, but anyway, congratulations, Tracy. It's a great choice. Uh, as far as reels go, I'd probably go with a Lampson Lightspeed on that. I just think that Lampson product, it's built in Idaho, it's U.S. built. They've been doing it a long time. The Lightspeed's been through numerous generations, always, you know, an improvement upon the last. I'm going Lampson Lightspeed. Um, easy choice uh, for me. Um, for If you have an aversion of Lampson, I have no idea why you would. Um, probably going, like, with a Ross Evolution LTX. Um, but Lampson would probably be my first choice because I trust them. I've had lots of them, and they never fail to let me down. It's got a big, large arbor for quick retrieve uh, and evenly spools out uh, when a fish is running on a 590-4 Sage X. I do want to have a quality drag system on that rod because I'm going to be tangling with some pretty aggressive critters at times. All right, KR Ludwis wants to know, sorry if I'm butchering these, these profile names, uh, wants to know what's my favorite dry dropper setup. And uh, I think I'm going Chubby Chernobyl. And, and let's just say I had to fish this thing forever on all rivers everywhere I go. I'm going with a number 12 Chubby Chernobyl in black and tan. Uh, underneath that, I'm going with a number 16 Rosa's Violet Tag Nymph. Tungsten jig head, sinks fast, catches fish, and I'm probably going to run, God, I'm going to sound crazy, I'm probably going to run 6X tippet. Um, the, light, the older I get, the more I realize that light tippet makes a difference. The fly sinks faster. So, yeah, 6X down to a number 16 Rose's Violet Tag underneath a number 12 black and tan chubby Chernobyl. All right, the next question is from J.V. Van Lee, and uh, it's a good question. So it's a personal watercraft question, and essentially it's asking, any tips on holding position in the wind using fins in a personal watercraft? And that can be really frustrating um, when you have wind because you obviously use fins and you go backwards, right? So I paddle and I'm going backwards. So the only, the only tip I'm going to give is I use a Watermaster boat for my personal watercraft. And what I like to do, and I did a video on this earlier in the year that touched on it. So you could refer back to it. And I shot it in like May of this year. And uh, it was, I'm fishing my neighbor's bass pond. And what I'd like to do is I like to use my oars. And I, get, or I go to the downwind side of the lake. And a lot of times what I'm going to do, depending on the wind, you want to use your depending on how the wind is quartering, because it's not always going to be parallel with the bank. But a lot of times what I'll do is I'll, I'll go ahead and paddle against the wind so that it'll keep me, so that I'm paddling straight into the wind. And that kind of keeps me stable. And so my, if it's a light breeze, I'm just kicking against the wind. Um, fishing with the wind can be a little bit more challenging. Um, and I'll either you know, depending on how it's quartering, I'm having a hard time explaining this, but if I, if I kick against the wind, I'm kind of moving slowly. And if I'm fishing as a right hander to my left bank, as I'm going backwards, uh, it works really well to work against the wind. If I'm fishing the other way, I, you don't want your fins, you don't want to be working with the wind because your fins just make you go faster with the wind essentially. So you can be tough to be kind of out of control and lack stability. So I guess 
without getting like too much into like the exact orientation, being a right-hander of the, the, the banks, I would probably tend to fish. I would use my oars and I would get myself positioned to where I can work upwind and slowly, slowly using fins and working my way upwind, casting at a bank, which would be to my left as I'm working along the shoreline. And so I'll use my oars and I'll row to a particular cove or a particular spot where I feel like I could work back against the wind methodically. So it's a good question. I tend, I don't like to work with the wind to answer your question. Okay, Joe S. Stokes asked me what is my favorite trout streamer rod for western fishing. Um, I've had lots. I've got lots. I don't have it in my Jeep right now, but it's going to be a Sage Payload 689-4. That thing is a bug launcher, man. Uh, I can skip a streamer up under brushy cover with that out of a drift boat like you wouldn't believe, and it will still launch sink tips and giant JJ buggers and Dalai Lamas uh, a long way. So... Uh, I like my streamer rod a little shorter and easier to load. I know that uh, three inches doesn't really make a big difference on like the overall uh, swing length, uh, but it just seems to shoot differently and throw tighter loops, just the way that thing loads. So I really like that Sage payload. And I'm going to put a real big nasty fly line on it. Um, I personally probably would run it. You know, I don't have that line on it right now, but I've tested it before with that line on there. And I personally would probably run a six on six, meaning six weight line on the six weight rod. If somebody was making shorter casts or they, they didn't have a real powerful casting stroke, I think the seven on the six might be a better match. Both are going to have some advantages. So um, I think you're going to feel that rod load a little deeper and it lacked a little bit more like a bow and arrow or slingshot with that seven weight line on there. So I'm going Sage payload, eight foot, nine inch, six weight. Uh, all day long uh, for tight cover big water whatever doesn't matter i'll take that rod anywhere um so that wraps up the q a um anyway keep following us i'll try not to take such a big break on the podcast uh, tell your friends share it with a couple of people um you can leave comments on the podbean app if you're listening to this on podbean rather than itunes i do look at those comments once in a while uh but uh yeah appreciate the support you're likely already following us on instagram if you're just listening to the podcast and chime in on the questions just follow us on instagram i'll just randomly take up a story once in a while and ask for these questions to recruit some good conversation topics so in the meantime check out our if you live in the northwest check out our reds university of fly fishing i would love to get you enrolled in that i'm a big part of it i believe in it i think it's an awesome program uh if you're just listening and mooching free information hey shop with us and buy something sometime uh, I'm going to go ahead and put up a coupon code. If you listen this long, I'm going to give you 10% off anything you want for the next week. Just put in uh, promo code uh, not a freeloader. Okay, that's going to be the promo code not a freeloader. All right, 10% off your whole order at redsflyfishing.com. That's going to go from seven days till today. Yeah, if you didn't listen to this podcast, Right when it popped up, sorry, you're not going to get the freeloader coupon, but always listen to the end and see what you get. So coupon code is not a freeloader. Thanks for listening.